Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. Over the past four episodes, we've been visiting the farmers out at Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. The point of all of these episodes has been to explore how farming and agriculture might be done in a way that is earth and biodiversity and humanity friendly. As mentioned in the episode with Katie Finlay, the first of the four, agriculture is responsible for a huge amount of emissions worldwide. Farming, if done differently to the massive corporate monocultures that currently dominate our food production systems, could actually sequester carbon instead of producing it. It could be a climate solution not a climate problem. The cooperative out at Harcourt has been and continues to be an amazing example of people thinking differently about land ownership, land stewardship, and how we might be able to grow food and grow community at the same time. On that note, each and every one of them talked about how important the support of the local community has been and how much enthusiasm they've received from people who get what they're trying to do and are 100% behind them even if it costs that customer a bit more and is not as convenient as shopping at the supermarkets. The orchard keepers, Tessa at Cellar Dairy and gung-ho growers have long-term loyal customers at the farmer's market and others who subscribe to a community-supported agriculture or CSA subscription, which looks like a weekly box of fruit or veggies or bottles of milk. But it isn't just individuals buying for their families that support these farmers. So this week, I thought I'd look at some small businesses who prioritise locally produced food. These are people who go to the extra effort and often spend extra time working with the farmers and see them through the ups and downs, wins and losses of seasons and years and changing weather. Mel from Gung Ho gave me a lovely long list of local eateries, cafes and restaurants and there were way too many for me to talk to all of them, though any of them on her list would have been wonderful to talk to. And, you know, honestly, these people are worthy of episodes of Saltgrass in and of themselves because they're all doing really interesting things, doing business sustainably. But hopefully the two I have talked to will demonstrate that no matter whether you're a wholesome sourdough bakery selling bread and pies and toasties through a window of your bakery and at markets, or... If you're a mood-lit ambient music cocktail and three-course meal fine dining experience, you can choose to support local growers either way. Of course, before we begin, I'm going to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country, home of the Jajarung. They've been zero-waste ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations, and they continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live here better. I give thanks to them and honour elders past and present. Always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So let's start with Mel from Gung Ho Growers. I asked her what the support of local businesses has meant for herself and Gung Ho the business over the years. Oh, to be honest, I'm always astounded by their generosity of understanding, their support. They've been there from the word go, Ali, really. They've become my friends, my mentors, people that I laugh with or cry with, that understand one of them said to me, everyone works harder than you think they do. 
yeah. and it stuck with me because everyone does. <laughs> yeah. And and I think being in a community of people who are trying to do a business, whether it be hospitality or a restaurant or a cafe or a bakery or provide something that makes their heart full but also offer something, but then having to do it in this business framework thing, what you realise is that we're such a small community and that without looking out for each other and looking after each other when things are good or when things are hard, you know, that's actually the essence of what it is all about. And cool, you could buy our broccoli and then that person from that shop will eat your broccoli and then I'll go over to that person's house for dinner or we all, you know, <laughs> I work for you and you buy my produce and or our produce and it's all just so interconnected. It takes commitment from another small business to commit to buying local food because it's a bit more expensive and it's not as reliable. The fact that we have to have such a close relationship means I don't want to let them down. It also means I'm accountable to them. But they also hear every week, oh, yeah, it's still raining and the rabbits ate this thing. And the kangaroos sat on the other thing. Yeah. And they say it's okay. <laughs> They say to me they understand. Maybe they're gritting their teeth. They have to adjust their menus. Exactly, that's what I mean. Week by week. They have yes. to be creative within their own they business do. Yeah. to and accommodate you. Yeah, and some reflections that I've heard back is they want to do that because they want to support people like us as well. And they said they can tell the taste and the density of the vegetables is different and we make them, they cook the good veggies. It makes them look good too. <laughs> But then and it's also, like, oh, look, this fancy person's using our produce. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to be chuffed. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. But also in terms of being a customer of those places, yes. it's like I love knowing that they've bought Grung Ho yeah. stuff yes. to put in their sandwiches or whatever it is that they're yeah. making. Yes. That for me in a small town where I know you and I know them is a beautiful thing as yes. a customer of theirs that, I will prioritize them because they're prioritizing yeah, you yeah you know? yeah and th that's what I mean about us all looking after around. each yeah, yeah yeah it really yeah. does Bar Midland is a fine dining experience run by Loudon Cooper and Alex Perry Alex is a chef and he was one of Gung Ho's very first customers when he was running the good table Bar Midland is his latest venture and it's a beautiful venue in an historic old pub. I arrived one afternoon before service began and he showed me around and we admired the ancient copper pipes that tangled all the way up this wall. It was really cool. And we talked about the history of the building and he showed me a little of how they prep some of their ingredients. And we sat at a table and I could imagine all of the important life events and beautiful moments that might take place in a venue like that. As you'll hear, Alex is deeply committed to earth-friendly hospitality. He has been involved in many enterprises and projects, including one that's featured in Saltgrass in the past, which is the gastronomy art collaboration called Jakichla. Central to that whole project was the idea of eating country healthy. And you'll see that this philosophy is one that he has kept as a fundamental part of his operations at Bar Midland. And Mel tells me this, I was in my last restaurant, The Good Table, was their first customer, or first commercial customer anyway. Yeah. And then 
through all the little things I do around town, I've used them. So I sub in at Togs and Mulberries occasionally. I use it there. When my business partner, Lad, and I were at the Theatre Royal, we were using them there. And obviously we're using them in our current restaurant, Bar Midland. But there's other little food projects I do. I've got an offshoot of what I do called Situation Dining. And it was kind of the precursor to us starting this restaurant, but it was a ethically orientated catering business. Then we use Mel's stuff there as well. Of course, COVID turned up and then all those, those sort of things were cancelled. But it was actually kind of a good thing because we evolved starting a restaurant with the similar philosophies. Like when we talk about sustainability and ethics in restaurants, like none of it is sustainable. <laughs> the word ethical obviously means nothing as well. It's different for everyone. Different for everyone, so it brings context. So I guess this is my personal ethical take on things and then it's evolved with my business partner Aladdin how he treats things as well we kind of very loosely follow a zero waste philosophy which is getting more and more popular in restaurants and cafes around the world the token restaurant that people look to is a place called silo in london and they're doing like incredible things with their wine bottles they'll melt them down and turn them into pottery or other similar restaurants using clay from the farm they might be growing food on to make the crockery for the restaurant. So we're bit by bit heading in that direction. Currently, our, one of our projects with Ladin is what do we do with corks from wine bottles? And we're trying to produce some sort of wine menu with a cover as cork, but it requires us to grind up the cork, glue it together. We've got to find ways to glue it together that aren't, that aren't detrimental. And yeah, but these are cool projects. And that's, I guess, how we treat the resources, but the food itself and it applies to the wine as well, beers and spirits. It's more than just the focus. It's, it's like the core philosophy is organic, biodynamic and regeneratively farmed food. That's all within Victoria. And it's as simple as that. And it's been interesting because obviously everyone's like, oh, but you can't do this. You can't use coffee. You can't use chocolate. You can't use sugar. But the cool thing about it is that when you've got all the options in the world to work with, it's very hard to make a decision about what you're doing. But when you have less options and you're limited, you start finding these more organic, in the other sense, the ways to produce things that have their own flavour profile. It's a different way of looking at things. On that note, just as an example, sugar. Cane sugar we can't use, so we started growing some sugar beets at the plot that my wife and I have at our house and we grew 20 kilos which wasn't that much so it only gives you a, like a few hundred grams of sugar so we got an organic farmer in Kealor to do the same thing this year he grew 600 kilos of sugar beet that we turned into a very raw version of sugar which means we can do things which not surprisingly as we found out it's something that was done up until the 1940s until obviously the transport between Queensland and Victoria became more efficient. It's really interesting to me that so many of the solutions that we're finding around this climate crisis and how we can live in a different way have actually been how people have lived for a very long time before that because by force we had to be local mm. <laughs> in everything because we just didn't have the transport options and I'm, I'm kind of curious about what that means for you as a chef in terms of like obviously you're doing a lot of this stuff yourself it's a lot of extra hours and a lot of extra thinking and for you creatively as a chef trying to make decisions around what's available you've got to be on your feet when i've done my apprenticeship and worked in restaurants it's the polar opposite of that so you know on monday morning or whatever it is you do a fruit and veg order and you know you have every single fruit and veg option available whether it be local international from far north queensland and then it's the same with the your meat supply you know you say all right 
I want this, I want chicken, lamb, beef. You've got so many options that it's technically too easy. And what we do, if it wasn't for mobile phones, I don't know how we would do it because it's a constant texting of like, oh, the meat that we do use in the restaurant's all invasive species, so therefore wild shots are therefore... If it's raining and the shooter can't get out there to shoot venison or rabbit, we'll find out, which means that week we'll, we might do a vegetarian-only menu or it might have certain seafood elements or something along those lines. So I guess that's the stark difference. But I guess with individual producers, it's there are lots of other benefits as well. And this happens with gung-ho, it happens with a few other similar organic producers. They'll say, oh, we've got maybe 100 watermelon radish. So you order the radish and then two days later, oh, the slugs have killed the tops of them or they're too badly damaged by snails or something along those lines, but you kind of know in advance. So then it's a constant, all right, well, that's fine, but I know my other suppliers, daikons, fit and healthy, so I'll order a bit more of that. So it's just a juggle every week, but that's kind of what makes it incredibly interesting and also means whether we want to or not, every weekend it has to change, which is far more engaging and dynamic than just day in, day out doing the same menu and over and over and over again. And maybe there's something wrong with me, but I kind of like it when things don't go to plan, which is obviously frustrating for people around me. But I like saying, oh, no, we're not doing that this week because of the weather conditions. Because it it really does make you, or me as a chef, and then maybe I can convey that to our customers as well. It shows that in the real world, in growing in more organic ways, nothing goes to plan the weather is your best friend and your worst enemy and that affects what we do by the end of the week so don't have your expectations you're going to have something because it's always a a gamble i don't there are times when it does become stressful you know like we don't know if supplies coming maybe they don't even know if they're coming but we've developed ways of having essentially backup plans for things we do a lot of preservation and growing ourselves so at the end of summer we don't have enough time to preserve what we need to like we did 150 kilos of tomato passata this year obviously we're constantly fermenting and pickling and things like that so there we have a big array of things to work with so alex you were part of jacket la which was eating country healthy and you were the chef for that project and it was explained so beautifully by jara woman rebecca phillips in that event and it's about eating what is a weed or eating what is out of balance in the ecosystem and by doing that you're helping to eat country back into health so what you're saying about how you work with farmers and flow with what is abundant is exactly that right and that's the philosophy for our the restaurant entirely that was the first time i guess in particularly dealing with beck who is our representative from jara yeah she kind of looked at me and lit up with the way i was talking about it i'm like maybe maybe we're on to something maybe it's just not my imagination and over the past year and a half we've really realized it and particularly it was 2021 i think that we could start eating invasive venison and my entire life as a chef in victoria we've always had farm venison but then you hear these statistics of two million deer running wild in victoria causing grief in so many situations. I almost hit one with my car the other day. It was running across the road near Malden. And that's what people are saying, like coming in more and more, because obviously it was originally just more Alpine-esque sort of areas, but they're coming in closer and closer because of overpopulation. And to me, it's such a no-brainer. It's so obvious. Obviously, there's a nuance for a lot of us who have become accustomed to cooking meat, particularly supermarket meat, where it's pretty much all treated for you, minced, cut into steaks, whatever it might be. 
there is an element of learning but hopefully if restaurants like ours and others are starting to do it it, it has to filter down to the general public at, at some point in the next few years. I even read an article not so long ago, the idea of ethical eating or invasive species eating is kind of the new vegetarianism. And we find that in our customers a lot when people book. that They're given the option of omnivore, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian. But as, as they come in and we explain our philosophy, people who say they're vegetarian are curious about the way we source the meat which I should also say only makes up 10% of our set menu, so it's a small component of it. But then I would say 50% of people in that are more than willing to flip over and knowing that it's not a farmed animal, it's an invasive species, and the grief that that causes, apparently it's not possible to eliminate them in the same way we can't get rid of foxes or rabbits, but to control them gives the best chance for rehabilitation. Going a long way back, one of my first conversations was with Mel 10 years ago, just sitting around some post-party campfire and Mel was like, if you were to buy stuff, what would you buy? And she was scribbling down a list of this, that and the other. (laughs) And watching that evolve has been a very cool thing. And obviously then gaining a business partner, I think they were originally doing on someone's block of land and then they moved to Harcourt watching the process evolve and then obviously watching how the co-op has evolved as well around them is is, it's a very cool process and I don't know the word serendipity is used a lot but it's definitely without a producer like Gung Ho particularly in Ashai it's not really possible for us to do our thing because our focus really is to trying to get things from around Mount Alexander It, it, it makes sense or in our Shire because that applies to so many other things. And given there was holy goat, goat's cheese in Sutton Grange, not too far from Harcourt, it's the next thing on top, I guess, as a, a veg grower. And obviously the connection to the farmer, knowing that the radishes are going to be slug affected this week, which means you might change your mind about doing that, is the greatest thing rather than, you know, Friday afternoon, a box of radishes turns up they've been eaten by slugs and what are you supposed to do with them like it's it's these little nuances which make the difference i mean there's the other thing as well is like if you've got an organic farmer who's picking for your restaurant midweek and you're serving it by friday it's no brainer it's going to be very fresh you you don't have any issues about like oh i've got saggy this that and the other like obviously in a lot of restaurants veg suppliers give restaurants their older stuff first it's it's an obvious philosophy often the case might be i will pickle those because they're a bit old there's nothing like that has to happen the other thing is it helps you really understand the seasons from where we are because of where the gung-ho is located on a slope that's a degree and a half, I think, warmer than Castlemaine, or a little bit warmer, and things grow a little bit better there, that you know that if they're ahead of something, everything else around here will be two weeks behind, so you can start balancing out who you order bits and pieces from, and I grow a fair bit of for the restaurant as well, and often we're head-to-head with the gung-hos, but then they jump ahead because of their considerable advantage and skills and the fact that I'm a chef and not a farmer. <laughs> but I could start the season with two varieties of tomato that I have and then move on to Mel's. And often we'll do this when it comes to 
March, April with like the late summer stuff. It's not as cool there. We probably get the first frost down here a little bit sooner. So you know that they're going to be hanging on a bit longer. You develop this understanding of it all and, and you, it, it works like that, which is very cool because it means you can loosely plan menus at least. Yeah. Hmm. I'm getting this image of you as a spider in the middle of a spider web and you've got these sensitivities in all these different directions because you've got these farmers telling you what's happening on their farms and you can like feel the vibrations through the network. Totally, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And then it is interesting and we're very lucky in our weekly farmer's market. It's not so much the, the monthly one, which I guess has a lot of touristic elements, but our weekly one, gung-hos obviously present their produce and then you'll have a grower from close to Dalesford and then you'll have someone from Keel or, or, and then someone from closer to Woodend and then you start adding it all up and exactly, I do feel I'm in the spider web kind of thinking, all right, that's happening there, it's happening there and then overall it's not a competitive force, it's just a matter of one grower's got this but they're very cool climate gung-hos are a little bit warmer so they're ahead in that respect and it it works really well Mm. people say hospitality and restaurants are hard but they're not hard compared to farming my mother's family have all grown up on farms they still have farms and i've seen relatives work around the clock head torches on tractors all night it's extremely hard and i guess one thing that it's a constant thing that i'm aware of and i don't want to reiterate it to everybody I see on the street but the true price of food between the two major supermarket chains which is sadly encroaching on our shire which obviously there's so many elements to this and it sounds pretentious from my point of view that I say this but their food's too cheap it's a false economy and then it just makes the job of farmers like Mel so hard because there's so much of a lack of appreciation for hand weeded organic garden beds it's like there's just such a stark contrast and i don't know how it can be conveyed and it's something i'm going to continue supporting because i don't see any other option to be honest mel has made the hard decision to have to close it and of course i think to myself oh maybe there could be a community way to keep it going we're all constantly thinking these things and i'm sure mel's gone through every option thought about it but these things need a figurehead, someone who's prepared to do 80 hours a week or whatever it takes. Mm. So it's sad and it's going to obviously leave a bit of a gap in what we do here as well. I'm just very proud of Mel for keeping it going as long as she has. We now have a tourist precinct in Castlemaine, which is called The Mill, and it's at the site of an old woolen mill, and it was once a major industry in this town. But now all of those massive buildings and tiny little rooms and various hodgepodge of infrastructure is being used by many small businesses from clothing manufacturers, winemakers, cafes, beer brewers, and there's even an epic vintage bazaar where people can have a permanent kind of market stall zone in this indoor area and sell secondhand stuff. And in amongst all of this busyness, there is also an organic sourdough bakery called Sprout. And they've been running in Castlemaine for over 18 years. I don't know if you remember the Red Beard Bakery episodes of Saltgrass, but Paul and Patricia also raised their kids amongst the 
bustle of the bakery. Their two now mostly grown children were infants who had naps on the flour sacks as their parents worked. And they started the business by driving between farmers markets and delivering to cafes and shops right across the central Victorian region. But they quickly worked out that that was not how they wanted to live or run their business. They also had a strong sense that they wanted to work with growers who were relatively nearby as well. So this is Paul and Patricia. When I first started the bakery, I kind of put a prayer out to the universe for I really, really want to be able to buy my flour locally. And I said, and that was kind of like this giant wish that I would be close to the source of the materials that I was using. And flour is like the fundamental part of the bakery. I really, really want that to happen. And and a mate said, well, you know, ring the faucets because they've started milling their own flour. And I was like, these are the guys at Pallet Hill. And I, and I rang them and then drove out there and was like, my God, this is just like 45 minutes. That's so close. Yeah. <laughs> like my prayers have been answered. And it was like, this is just great. This means, so for me, that was kind of like a manifestation or wish fulfillment or, but it also made me think that I was on the right path, that actually, yeah, the bakery would happen. And I went, okay, so it's possible and it can happen. Great. <laughs> the other thing about yeah. for us buying locally is that it's really important to us to keep the human element of being in business because being self-employed anywhere is really full-on. You know, it's a lot of work. And we like the idea of being able to have conversations with all our producers and our customers to be able to have personal conversations with them about, okay, this is why the spelt looks a bit weird this week. You know, mm-hmm. the flour wasn't working or the oven had a problem. So we, we want to be able to have those conversations with people. So Paul would take a long time picking up flour from Powlett Hill because he would have a conversation with Andrew Fawcett and his son Ben about the growing season, mm-hmm. about the weather, about how the spelt has turned out this year and what kind of characteristics it's going to show and how that's going to work in the bread. And there was this feedback loop with the farmers about the effect of their product on our product mm. and it was really lovely to be able to have that close relationship with them and it made it more meaningful so that they understood what kind of bread was coming out from that process and it wasn't just being sent out to a big company which is why we didn't want to sell to the IGA for example because we wanted to keep having those little conversations with cafes or retailers about how things were going with each of us. Yeah, we like that about being in business. These days, you obviously, you have pastries, you have pies, you have focaccia and pizza and <laughs> all sorts of tasty things that are not just bread, although bread's still your core mm. business. When did you start buying from Gung Ho? When you said before, she started Gung Ho. But I think they'd been functioning for a little while before we started buying their product. I just wanted to support what they were doing and be able to have those same conversations with Sass and Mel about growing experiences and what was going on. And, and actually, the product was far superior to anything. Oh, anything absolutely else. anything we were getting yeah. as well. Yeah, just Their salad veg, which is mainly what we were buying for our toasties, salad sandwiches lasted for two weeks whereas other salad veg we were buying from other places lasted maximum three days and then it started getting manky Mm -hmm. and it was so different you know and also their mix what what they chose to put in it obviously was really really obviously seasonal Mm. yeah and so sometimes you get like lots of the leaves of of beans and things like that in it Mm. and so the mix changed all the time 
mm. with the seasonal availability. And I, I really, really liked that. I yeah. thought that was really... Beautiful flavours. Yeah, really great flavours. And just the fact that it somehow represented the season mm. that we were in, as opposed mm. to, you know, the, a lot of... Most other salad mixes, pretty much, it's generic. It's hydroponic. It's, it's hydroponic. <laughs> it's always exactly the same. Yeah. There's never any flavour variance through it. Yeah. It's like a recipe that they just follow every day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was salad with salt. Well. Yeah. Mm. That's what it, that's what it just, tasted like. Just, mm. yeah, yeah. just was really, really fantastic. Yeah. Did your sense of relationship with them develop over time as they grew as farmers? Well, we developed a really nice friendship with Mel, mm. which yeah. we value a lot. Mm. And... We were able to cross-promote each other, you know, we'd often, through socials, you know, like if Mel came to deliver some veggies, I might take a photo and put it up on our Insta page and vice versa. And that was a fun and really nice way to show all our customers that, hey, we really think these guys are you beaut and hopefully that exposure, they're thinking about why we do that, why we want to support this kind of thing and I know that I've heard from customers who come to the mill and go oh you know what's going on here in Castlemaine and the mill they really feel that there's something quite particular about what's going on in our town and in that context they were talking about you guys really look after each other there's not a sense of competition and I always say we actually don't we honestly do not see it like that we just feel that we're all trying to do stuff and we all support each other mm. and then mostly we, it's yeah. complementary as in like yeah the, those sure. businesses complement ours and and vice mm. versa and also we recognize that th- there's a diversity of market perhaps what we supply one group of people isn't what they want so that they're going to go to somewhere else to get it and i think yeah. it's really really great that there's a bunch of other people doing stuff and getting out there and having a go and absolutely yeah i, th- I mean Castlemaine is a strange town just for our perspective when we first started we were selling 130 loaves a day at Castlemaine Fresh but we were also in Bendigo at a really really large whole food market up there but in that marketplace we would sell 130 loaves a week and it really didn't expand much like even if I, even if I went up there and chopped bread and gave it away mm. I still saw no real growth in that market mm. but here there's been constant growth some businesses aren't complementary, so some businesses are competitive. So there are opportunities to buy other sourdough breads in Castle Maine that aren't made by us or Giza or Redbed that are coming up from Melbourne or Geelong or Colac. Mm-hmm. They're all over the place, Anglesey, and they're all shipped up here and they're all sold. People are buying it. So when you think about how many people are buying the types of products that we as, as a group of bakers make, up here it's quite phenomenal when you think about there's a population of over a hundred thousand people on our doorstep and they're not buying it ten times as many people yeah and mm. and not even like a one percent yeah yeah whereas this town's what yeah <laughs> nine and a half thousand yeah. maybe yeah. But the population yeah. is supporting yeah and I've got, kind of got local business stupid theory that people are trying to buy a piece of something you know that's in Castlemaine that there's something the camaraderie or the the collaboration that we have that is not competitive it's more about we're all trying to make it happen and we're all trying to look after each other and I feel like 
that that's what's making this all work. Mm. And with Gung Ho, you know, there's lots of growers and lots of producers and we're all trying to go, hey, they're doing this kind of thing and it's really cool and they're doing that kind of thing and it's also really cool. And it's, that's what it's more about. That's what's important is that we're trying to do good things. Well, we, we think we are. We hope we are trying to do good whole thi- things that are good practice. Mm. And allowing people to do their thing as yeah. opposed to getting in each other's way. Yeah. You know, I really love the products that, that have come out of Gung Ho. I really like their fruit and veggies. It's really, really fantastic. And I really, really support them. But I would never, ever say, you know, you should be doing this. Yeah, yeah. Can you grow me? Can five you grow me tons of? You know, like <laughs> yeah, I need, I need fifty yeah. ton of carrots. Can you grow me those? Yeah, yeah. Because to celebrate what they are doing. Because you, yeah. you know, it's not. I don't want to get in anybody's way. And I think that's the nature of a number of the businesses up here. It's like try to keep out of each other's way and celebrate what they do because that can happen. Because <laughs> it's hard work, mm. Mm. and you know, be constantly being creative or finding ways to keep your business sustainable is hard work and just going we understand that you're working hard that's enough and let's celebrate that and then try and hold each other up with all that by going hey check out those guys they're awesome check out those guys and buy some of us as well but but also buy their product because it's all good it's all great at the time of recording this conversation with Paul and Patricia, they were actually on a little enforced holiday at the bakery because their floors were getting redone. And that's because last year when the floods were affecting all the farmers so much, they were also affecting other businesses. And Paul and Patricia and everyone at the mill got flooded. And I thought it was interesting to talk to them about this because it's part of what living in a climate affected world looks like and yes we've always had floods but you know we are getting unprecedented levels of events happening I think what they describe in that moment of their premises getting flooded is an example of how community resilience works and so they are people who have given to the community and are embedded in the community and when stuff goes down people show up for them. We kept watching the creek rise because the creek runs just beside the whole mills complex. And then my friend moved my car the out road. of the way. Oh, yeah, because it was, it was going to get hit by the, the thing. And we saw it sort of coming across. And went, oh, that's okay. It's sort of coming across. And, and then suddenly... And then there was a wave. Came over Walker Street. And it just came straight over, like, the, the big gutter that's there Through in front the of Walker Street. Through the cyclone fence. Through the cyclone fence and just started filling up everywhere it came up the wall of the bakery to about i think about 800 yeah and mil. the chocolate place got flooded first and got, yeah, through the wall and came through their I, wall. I went over there because we were still baking and i yeah. rushed over to the chocolate place with freya and thomas and we started mopping and boomtown crew were there mopping as well mm-hmm. and then i went back into the bakery to get another mop i think and then i slowly saw this water creeping in on the floor and I'm going there's water on the floor there's water on the floor and then we looked at the wall and it started coming in like a dam you know they see the boy with the finger in the dam it started spurting through holes in the bricks and it was just like and it became this yeah and we started I think we got about 20 centimetres in the floor of the bakery so we had to turn the oven off really quickly so that it wasn't dangerous that was the end of baking for that night baking stopped and then I think Tim from Boomtown put a call out on the social media because we're not very good at doing that stuff, you know, yeah. quickly. And he just said, guys, this is going on. 
if you can bring your mops and your buckets over. Mm. And then there was about... 30 people. 30 people just... Just showed up. Showed up. And then I... Out of nowhere. A couple of our friends called and said, do you want us to come over? And I said, yeah, bring your mops and buckets. And these people just... Came from everywhere. Arrived. And And the whole um, corridor was filled. Full of people. And we were just basically pushing water out of the bakery and out of... For about five hours. Caboose and Fever and... Just mopping constantly. Just constantly pushing the the water out, pushing it out. Into the drains. There were some kids in Caboose and Fever that were winching about the fact that they were losing time on there. They had some game they were all playing online. (laughs) And they were really worried that everything was going to... I don't know, I'm not an online gamer, so I don't know why this would be a crisis, but apparently they're going to, like, time out or something like that, which meant that they were all going to lose whatever they'd started. So, and then their power went out yeah. at a certain moment because yeah. the substation got flooded near the creek. So and we're all working in line. We Then torches all came out from everywhere, yeah. and we were working and in... Phones, I guess. And yeah, phones, torches and, and phones. And we were working and in the dark, just, just trying to move all the stuff this around. Water out of the bakery. Yeah, and the, the guys so in the end, they dug a hole in the... In the, ah, yeah. In the um, Phil's sons in the corridor, they jackhammered out a hole. Wow. And then put a a pump into it. So we were just pushing water into this hole, and then that was pumping back out to the and creek. And I think Tim, at some point, and his and his staff pulled, pushed, rolled out this massive vat, wine vat, and we were just bucketing into water the into the wine vat. Oh, well, he had a big pump in the other room, pumping. so he was just pouring into that pump, and then that was pumping back out into the creek. It was. Yeah. Absolutely. It was nuts. It was nuts. But it was incredible. Yeah, we came home just like so filled with amazing love and gratitude. It was so amazing. Because at 11 o'clock we're still bucketing out and we're still... This is it. This is the rest of my life. I'm just going to spend it moving water from one point for it to turn up and come back in. (laughs) (laughs) We were just just kind of keeping it at a level so it didn't go into the flower bags or the machinery. Mm. So we were basically constantly just moving water out of the bakery. I was like, oh, this is fun. And then suddenly it disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, as the river subsided. Well, basically the corrugated iron fence along the the fence, it all fell in. It completely collapsed because the water had undermined the foundations of it and it fell over completely. And at that point, all the water just went back <laughs> to the creek. Probably back to the creek. Pulled that down at the beginning, but we, you know, <laughs> you learn about these things. Yeah, in hindsight's hindsight. a great yeah. thing. Sure is. But yeah, so and the water just disappeared as quickly as it came. Almost, it's like it's gone. <laughs> it's just like it's gone. But there was this amazing sense. I've never been in a that kind of situation before, mm. where you feel a special connection with everyone there, even if you don't know them. You just mm. go. We are awesome, aren't we? <laughs> How good are we? How you know, we just felt like there's this amazing support network yeah. in that moment yeah. of intensity. Yeah. We got flooded with people as the flood came and then the people yeah. all disappeared as the water disappeared. Yeah. There was yeah. so yeah. much yeah. hugging going yeah. on and it was just awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. It was like, wow, we made it. It was like, wow, little, the crisis averted. It was quite incredible. Yeah, yeah. we felt fed yeah. by the community because, yeah. you know, it was such a crap situation to have been in. No one died, obviously. There's so much worse happening up in the Northern Rivers, of course. But, you know, we felt like we can get through this because of we knew that there was all these... This amazing group of people. Super awesome people around. Yeah. Just turn up out of the blue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
An incredible octopus is how Katie Finlay described the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. And as much as things keep changing and different people come and go, and as much as the model itself keeps growing and adapting and evolving, as it should, the core purpose and values of the place stay the same. How to farm in, with and for the community you are a part of in ways that are not extractive, but instead are generous to the land itself and the ecosystems that ultimately we're all a part of. Over and over across this little mini-series about the cooperative, we've heard the bare truth of how hard that is to achieve on a small scale and in the current societal conditions where massive supermarket chains can offer food at prices that undercut the small producers and are not reflective of the real costs of making that food. And that is costs to the planet by use of fossil fuels and pollutants that enter our waterways and soils and also costs to our collective future by contributing to climate change. These small-scale organic farmers are putting body and soul into the work of making food for us, their community, and it's businesses like Sprout and Bar Midland and so many others who buy from these farmers who help make what they're doing possible And it's probably also worth saying that, of course, this is just how these guys are doing it. There are other people trying similar experiments elsewhere. Katie, in the first episode about Harcourt, talked about other landowners who are also opening up their land in ways that help new farmers make a start. And Mel spoke about how the US and Europe are often ahead of us by many years as they explore land trusts and other ways of making access to land possible and equitable. The Harcourt farmers are all individuals and their experiences won't be the same for other people who try it elsewhere or even if people sign up to Harcourt and try it. And some parts that haven't worked, but many have. And all of the experiences of all of the people who've been part of it are valuable in helping to fine-tune and develop the model and the nature of the co-op. So just before we let go of the farm and all of the ventures and visionaries that have existed there, I thought some of you might want to hear from Sass, who started Gung Ho Growers with Mel over nine years ago, and who left the farm just a couple of years ago. She's had some time to catch her breath and reflect on what Gung Ho and working on that land and in that co-op has meant for her. I think for me it really showed me that there's something so beautiful in having an idea and running with it, just giving something a go. It's so easy in your life to have a million wonderful ideas, but they never come to anything unless you're willing to take that first step. And yes, things will be different to what you expected them to be, but I reflect on what Gung Ho has been and what it's brought to my life but also to the community and it's really special. Yeah I don't think I had any idea what it would be like. I think we went in with not the long-term vision of where we were headed or what it would look like in 10 or 20 or 30 or two years really. I think we just started with the ground under our feet and one plant of garlic at a time and we literally built it up from nothing. That was a really powerful experience in and of itself to go wow you can start with next to nothing and build something that's quite amazing. It gave me a real sense of purpose to wake up every day with a solid sense of what I was doing and why I was doing it and a knowing of how that contributed to something much bigger than myself was a real gift of gung-ho. There's something really intimate about feeding people, not just knowing the names of the people you're feeding but knowing who they are in your community and who their kids are and where they go to school and (laughs) you know there's something really intimate about that and I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a a small-scale farmer in a small community is you know exactly where your food's going and for me there's a really strong 
sense of responsibility in that of you're literally nourishing these bodies of these people that make up your community there's a real privilege in that as well yeah it's just a whole other level of connection from the earth and the way you tend the earth to the produce that you produce and then the way that nourishes and tends your community yeah there's something really powerful about that gung-ho was about forming those mycelic connections within the community whether it was the people who are eating the food or the people that were volunteering their time and energy to grow the food and the people going to market and yeah just the whole thing it's the relationship you build with each other. Did that feel purposeful within gung-ho like you guys knew that was part of what you were doing it wasn't just a byproduct? I think we always knew community was going to be a really core part of what we were doing. I certainly think I underestimated the power of food. It's a very real thing that we need to nourish and and live and be healthy, but it's also such a metaphor at the same time of the ways that we connect and come together and share. And I don't think I kind of had really unpacked all those things. Mm. A lot of that came with time and with getting to know people and then people feeding back and saying, oh, you know, we've made this dish with those beetroots and I've never tasted a beetroot like that and seeing the kids picking at the snow peas at the market stall or whatever it's so much more than just food food is so much more than just food it's the earth it's grown in it's the connections with the people that you share it with and how that supports us all to be healthier together I'm not a very good cook (laughs) I'm a good eater (laughs) and I always feel like when you share a meal with someone you're not just saying uh, here have some food because you're hungry you're saying I want you to be alive I want you to have a beautiful sensory experience Mm. and I want you to be healthy Mm. and I feel like that's what sort of underpins really good food yeah absolutely and it and it does it starts from below the ground up that whole process the food on the table is the end product of what starts with hands in the soil and tending of the earth and treating the earth and treating country as as a respected community member that's just as essential in this whole thing as the people at the end that are eating the produce I think what I really realized through growing food on a bigger scale to feed my community was the whole process is a process of tending tending and nourishing at every level and also if you're not tending and nourishing yourself in that process then there's a key link that is missing even though gung is coming to the end of its journey now as what it has been for the last eight or nine years i reflect on what it has been and the incredible success it has been in so many more ways than we ever could have imagined. We just wanted to grow food for our community and grow it well. And it's been so much more than that. Yes, we've grown food and we've grown it really well. And we've fed our community. We've fed so many people. You know, so many people have been involved and so many people have come together around gung-ho and not just gung-ho, but growing food and the idea of how we feed ourselves. And so many people have learnt from each other in that space and learnt about what our food system is and and how we might do it better and what are the challenges that we're up against. And I just feel like the ripples that are going out through the community and will continue to go out through the community for much longer than, than we've been around. You know, it's a real achievement. I feel like we've achieved much more than we ever actually set out to do. And even though this is the end of this story it's the beginning of many more and 
those ripples will continue to go and we don't know where and how they'll affect people and their lives and the choices they make and how they feed their families. Through farming and through growing food, one of the things that I really experienced was the feeling of what it is to be in relationship with country but what it is to feel the cycles of nature move through my body and to be a part of that and you know even now having not been with gung-ho for a little while it comes April and I feel in my body that I need to plant garlic (laughs) you know it's this the cycles are part of me and part of my body and part of life and everything has its natural cycle and I feel like yeah even as gung-ho comes to the end of this stage of its cycle who knows where it will pop up and what seeds are going to sprout elsewhere as a result of what gung-ho has been and the people and the plants and the soil that we've grown and the harvest that we've had and the seeds that have fallen who knows where those seeds have fallen and and what will sprout up from them. Did it surprise you how quickly and how enthusiastically the community came on board behind you guys? I was continually blown away by how many people were interested in what we were doing, how many people wanted to get behind it, and just the incredible generosity of people like Debbie Taylor, who just turn up week after week after week, day after day after day after day, asking nothing and just wanting to contribute because they believe in what we're doing. She'd be out there before her work, in the dark, with her head torch, weeding. (laughs) You know, and I think that's the beautiful thing is she gave so much to us. And this is true of all the volunteers, but they also got so much from it. And that's what kept people coming back because they believed in it. We're incredibly lucky in this community with the support that we've had. We could have started the same business in a different town with better soil (laughs) and better rainfall, but without the support of the community and the support of the volunteers and people wanting to get behind it, then the business is nothing. There's no point growing heaps of amazing food if if you've got no one to sell it to or if you've then got to travel 300 kilometres to sell it. The community support in all the facets, whether it's volunteers or people who'd come to market every week and buy our produce or those restaurants that were willing to eat weird vegetables and adapt their menus to deal with whatever it was we had an excess of. That's what supported us to grow in all the ways, not just grow the food, but grow ourselves and grow our business. I guess when we were talking about community support and all the support that got behind us as a business, both in the seedling stage and and as we matured, there's no way we could have done what we did without Katie and Hugh and their openness to have us on their land. You know, initially that was a labour exchange where we were not paying any monetary lease. And so that allowed us to get off the ground, Katie and Hugh could see our passion and could see our dedication to what we wanted to achieve and so incredibly generously opened their land up. So yeah, those first two years we did a labour exchange and then beyond that, what they asked of us was so reasonable. Like I think that's a real barrier to many people getting into farming is, is access to land. If you don't have a family farm you can land on or the funds behind you to buy land it's a real barrier for people wanting to start but for us having that labour exchange in the beginning and then beyond that really just asking to cover costs of rates and water and very basic expenses we couldn't really have found a more reasonable or supportive lease and land situation and I think we're yeah very lucky to do that because we wouldn't have even got off the ground without an arrangement like that. 
to get us going. They've been so incredibly generous and when I think of all the meetings and all the shit that's gone down, they're so incredibly generous and, you know, they, they see the big picture and they understand that things need to change and they're willing to put themselves and their property on the line to try out a different way of doing things and, yeah, I really respect that a lot. I think one of the real uphill battles with being a small-scale farmer trying to grow food is that our greater systems, our governmental bureaucratic systems, still aren't set up to support that. The gung-ho story is one little story, but it's reflective of a much bigger system and much bigger challenges that we face as an entire nation around how we feed ourselves in a way that nourishes country, that gives to country, not just takes from country, and feeds us at the same time. You know, we're still in an environment where our government subsidises industries such as logging old growth forests. Fossil fuels are subsidised and extracting minerals from the earth and subsidises ways of farming that take, 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 take and aren't thinking 20, 30, 40, 100 years into the future about how we're going to feed people if we keep taking from the soil. So this is the environment in which we're trying to grow food in a different way and the penny hasn't dropped yet at that governmental level. We can't ask people to pay more for their food but we do need systems that support people trying to do the right thing for country to feed our communities for those businesses or those enterprises to not burn out and not struggle for every dollar. Actually we need support at a bigger level. So yeah, what if we imagined a world where small-scale organic biodynamic regenerative farmers were subsidised by the government to do what they do and sell their food to their communities at a price that was affordable versus the scenario we find ourselves in now. You know, we're at a tipping point where these big shifts need to happen and unfortunately for gung-ho those <laughs> shifts haven't happened soon enough. But yeah, imagine a world where farmers could be supported to grow in the way that means we continue to feed our communities for countless generations into the future. There you go. That was Sass. And before her, we heard from Paul and Patricia from Sprout Bakery and Alex from Bar Midland. So I hope you've enjoyed this little mini series about the Harcourt Organic Farming Cooperative. It's been a real journey for both me and them across the time that I've been recording with them because as those of you who've listened to the previous episodes will know, there's been a lot of changes that have happened since I first started recording with them last year. But we're all going to have to get used to change. Trying new and experimental ways of working with humans and with the land and in business is all risky, you know, and these people are all courageous enough to give that a shot. And stay tuned because I know that the Harcourt Organic Farming Co-op is still growing and seeking ways of learning and developing the model and trying to work out ways that will really work for everyone. So who knows, maybe in another three or four years I'll touch back base and we'll see where they're at then. As ever, links and notes about this show and the previous four episodes about the co-op are on the Saltgrass website at saltgrasspodcast.com and of course you can listen to all episodes 
of Saltgrass on your podcast app and via the website at saltgrasspodcast.com. This program has been made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.com.au. My name's Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, 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 grass, Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.